Heavenly Father, we thank you that your words are spirit and life to us. And as Paul comes to open the scripture to us today, we ask that you would anoint his lips to speak and anoint our ears to hear. In the mighty name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. In 2008, a cyclone hit Myanmar, Burma, and about a third of a million people were killed. It was an appalling event as a natural disaster added to because of the unwillingness, incompetence of the government then that refused to let international aid come and uh, basically let its own people suffer. But some of the friends, people I've taught in past years, uh, went down to the Delta area where the worst of the destruction occurred. And they took aid, food and other things. Myanmar is a Buddhist country, about 90%, 89 to 90% Buddhist. And it seemed that the Buddhists offered very little help, by and large. The Christians did. And so many people were converted through that disaster as they saw Christians offering aid and help. And a number of the students I've taught in two colleges, the Anglican and another college in Yangon, uh, were involved with that sort of aid. The same thing is happening today in Europe and perhaps particularly in somewhere like Lebanon. A friend of mine works in Lebanon and she is involved with receiving refugees from Syria across the border, 20 kilometers from where she lives. And the Christian reception uh, of those refugees has led to thousands of people being converted from Syria in Lebanon, where churches are by and large overflowing uh, with new converts. How we live is part of, uh, if you like, evangelism or mission. We often think of mission and evangelism as going out and speaking a word, and that's certainly part of it and a core part. But the attraction of godly, generous living is part of the mission of God in this world and the mission to which we are called. In Deuteronomy, in the chapter that we've just heard read for us, for example, Moses says, I've taught you these decrees and laws, and why? What is a reason? There are various reasons given in, in the Old Testament and in Deuteronomy itself. Observe them carefully, he says, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations. Uh, that's in verse 6, near the beginning of this chapter. The other nations will say, Surely this great nation, Israel, is a wise and understanding nation. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them, the way that Yahweh our God is near us whenever we pray to Him? What God was doing by giving law to Israel and land and then sending them into this land to conquer it and settle in it was in a way to become a lighter beacon for the nations of the world. Uh, God choosing Israel was never the rejection of other nations. When we choose a cricket team, Kawaja's in, and that means that, what is his name, Burns is out, for example. One's in, one's chosen, that means one's rejected. But not so with ancient Israel. The choice or selection of Israel was for the sake of the other nations, uh, not for their rejection or exclusion. And, and this paragraph captures that. God in Deuteronomy through Moses is reminding the new generation 
of the law that he gave at Sinai. And this is a law that Israel is to keep, uh, not, not as a sort of uh, strict thing of you must obey this simply because this is God's will, but ultimately so that through an obedient Israel, the, old, the whole world will find God, that all the nations of the world will be blessed, as God said it to Abraham back in Genesis 12. We, I think, these days often have a view of the Old Testament law that it's a bit primitive, a bit barbaric, a bit unfriendly, and we're glad that we're not, you know, we've moved on from there. But I think that's a, an unhelpful way of viewing the law of Moses. That as we actually read the law, we find there something that remains, even to this day, beautiful something that should give us delight, as it gave the psalmist delight. Marilyn Robinson, who's a, a professor of literature and an author uh, from the United States, uh, she's written, apart from some great novels like Gilead, uh, some essays, and a couple of them, uh, basically, they don't expound the law, but they reveal its beauty. And she does it in, in wonderful way. And it's, uh, I remember reading this essay thinking, I don't think I teach like this when I teach Pentateuch or Deuteronomy. And it's actually helped me think a little bit more about how to help us see the, the beauty of the law of the Old Testament. That as we read the laws, and if you were to keep reading the chapters of Deuteronomy, for example, we see here the beauty of compassion in the law, the care for the widow, the orphan, the landless people, even the aliens who come in and join ancient Israel. We see the beauty of justice, that those who exercise justice are to be fair. No bribery, uh, no partiality. Most of our countries in the world are riddled with bribery and partiality and nepotism and so on. But how beautiful it is to see a law that shows such fairness and justice, that assumes innocence before guilt, for example that limits vengeance and provides a haven, a safe place for people so that they would not be the victims unfairly of vengeance if, for example, they're involved in manslaughter. We see here a radical economic where generosity to the poor is, is to be almost limitless. Uh, no interest rates, cancel the debts after seven years to those who are poor, release slaves after seven years. This is a costly economic, but it's a beautiful law. And it's a law that still, I think, speaks in a challenging way to us, to the, the values of our culture, society, and even within our Christian community as well. And yes, it's a law that has stricter sexual demands than our society has already and wants to have further. But on the other hand, this stricter sexual demands shows us the beauty of marriage, the beauty of family life that is way ahead and shoulders above what so much of our world thinks or practices these days. We sometimes think the law of the Old Testament is simply about an external behavior. But if we read Deuteronomy carefully, it keeps reminding us that this law is to come from the heart that you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. The heart must be generous. The heart must not covet and be greedy. What I'm saying is that this is a beautiful law and not something for us to just sort of skip over in our Old Testament class because it's a little bit boring, 
Let's jump into Joshua and a bit of blood and guts for some excitement. <laughs> but rather, the, the law of the Lord, which is perfect and beautiful, something to be practiced with love and faith and trust, is also in itself, therefore, an attraction that is where God's people keep God's law, as Israel hardly ever did, of course, it will be an attraction for the nations to come to God. And that's certainly what Deuteronomy 4 verses 5 through to 8 basically is saying. And there are other passages that would echo this sort of idea. So here we have to remind ourselves, this, this is not something that's passed by when we get into the New Testament, though it changes, of course. It's not about a nation being attractive. It's about the church, God's people being attractive. And we must maintain that, yes, on the other hand, we go out and we preach the gospel, but so often our churches are divided, are hard-nosed, are grumpy, complaining, are lacking in generosity, lacking in love. That is, the church of God must be, like Israel was meant to be, for the sake of the nations, under God's law, showing the character of God, his love, his justice, and care for the poor, and so on and so forth. We must not separate mission unfairly, I think, from the attraction that the church has a role to play for the sake of the nations. And so Moses goes on to say in verse 9, only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live, teach them to children, and so on. Moses recognizes, as God recognizes, as we ought to recognize, keeping God's law is not an easy thing. On the one hand, later in Deuteronomy, it is an easy law, but it is not easy in a sense. Our hearts must be right, and that's uh, perilously difficult to get right. So Moses keeps warning people, watch yourself closely, pay careful attention, because our default position is away from God's law. Our hearts are not right. And so there is a rigor with which we are to live and approach and recognize God's law. And Moses keeps reminding them in this chapter and beyond, don't forget what your eyes have seen. Now Deuteronomy is full of uh, things that are seen. But the thing that is not seen is God himself. And Deuteronomy will go on in these verses to say what you saw was actually, in a way, a voice. And in this chapter in particular, we find such a contrast with so much of the religious world in which we live, including some practices of Christianity as well. I teach it most years in Nepal and in India, and there are millions of gods and statues and temples. I teach several times a year in Myanmar and a few times a year in Thailand in a university. And of course, it's Buddhism there. In Nepal and India, it's Hinduism. And though I live in Malaysia, which is an iconic like Christianity is meant to be, it's Muslim majority, uh, there's still enough of Buddhism and Hinduism around. Uh, we're not perhaps so used to that in Australia. Moses here is warning people don't fall into the habit of worshipping something of the creation in place of the creator. And he goes through in reverse order the creation of days 4, 5, and 6 later in this chapter. Don't worship 
Huma humans don't worship animals or birds or fish or the sun or the moon or the stars. We worship God, but God is, has no form that humans have seen. Mount Sinai, when they were there a generation before, was uh, an audiovisual extravaganza that beat any Olympic opening ceremony, I should think. But what matters most is not what they saw, but what they heard. The Word. The Word that God spoke. And now in Deuteronomy, that same Word is being spoken by God through Moses to the next generation. The chapter began to, by saying, listen or hear, O Israel. It's the word that matters. And it's the word that we are to heed, hear, follow, obey, and beyond that, even to proclaim. That is, even in this visual age in which we live, and I think most cultures have actually been visual ages to a degree, it's actually a word that matters most, not a picture, not an icon, uh, not an image or a film, uh, not a statue, uh, not a temple building or something like that. A reminder to us, I think, how radically different uh, Yahwism, if I use that word, was in the ancient world, where all the other cultures had statues and poles and pillars of their gods, uh, often with multitudes of them. Some of us might be familiar with seeing in museums the ancient uh, Near Eastern statues, the Greco-Roman world of statues of the gods and so on. Well, our culture is a little bit different, but all around us we see, I think, the forms of idolatry. It may not be Hinduism and Buddhism in this country so much, but it's consumerist cathedrals in every suburb, the worship of wealth and money, all sorts of other idols. This chapter is, is quite radical, I think, in directing us to an, a formless worship of God. It's not because God has no form, but his form was not seen. The voice was heard. There's a priority here, I think, to the word. That Christianity is a, an oral spirituality above a visual spirituality. So even though Deuteronomy keeps saying, remember what your eyes have seen, what they've seen is what God has done. But even above that is what God has said. The word spoken must be heeded. And then... The last point, I guess, to pick up the last part of the chapter, it's, this is a, a long chapter to cover in just 20 minutes, but I want to pick up the last section from verse 32. It begins with rhetorical questions, a bit like earlier in the chapter, and Moses has gone through something of, of the priority of, of an iconic, no icons or idols to be worshipped, and he's spoken about the character of God as, as jealous God, and merciful at the same time in verses 24 and 31. But you know, in a sense now, he, he concludes this opening section of his sermon by, if you like, raising the rhetoric to the element of persuasion and conviction. Why should this be the case? And he does it with these rhetorical questions. Ask now about the former days, long before your time, from the day God created human beings on the earth, us from one end of the heavens to the other. Now, for any of you writing an assignment, this would be a daunting prospect. So often our assignments and theses and PhD theses are so narrow. That is, oh, I'm going to look at 1 Peter. Oh, no, that's too big. I'll do 1 Peter 4. No, that's too big. I'll do 1 Peter 4 verses 12 to 17. Well, even that's a little bit big. 
My thesis was on Deuteronomy and I limited it to about four chapters and even that felt big at times. But here, your research is to be timeless and spaceless in limitation. That is, ask from the beginning of time to today and from one end of heaven to the other. That is, it's an unlimitless research project here. And then come the questions that you're to research. Has anything so great as this ever happened or has anything like it ever been heard of? The implied answer, of course, is no. So it's an easy research project. <laughs> and then comes the specifics. Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? And again, the implied answer is no. No other people has heard God speak. Now, so important is that in our world today where the uniqueness of Christianity is so often compromised, where so often even Christians say, well, we're just one religion among many. But not so. It is only one God. And this is the God who's spoken to his people at Sinai, and they lived. And it's never happened before, and in one sense it's never happened again, although God keeps speaking, of course, in different ways, and primarily in his Son. And then secondly, has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testing signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds, like all the things that the Lord your God did before you in Egypt, before your very eyes? Well, again, the idea of seeing, but it's seeing what God has done. It's not seeing God that matters. And the, again, the implied answer is no. No other God has ever done that for a people, ever before. And in a sense, ever since. Although God, has, who rescued his people so dramatically then, has provided a greater rescue on a cross 1,400 years after Moses. What the argument here is, if you like, it's an, an experiential apologetic for monotheism. In a sense, it's saying there is no other God. That's where we get to the climax of these questions. In verse 35, you're shown these things so that you might know that Yahweh is God. Besides him, there is no other. Maybe even more clearly in verse 39, acknowledge and take to heart this day that Yahweh is God in heaven and above uh, and on the earth below. There is no other. Full stop. It's not a philosophical argument for there being only one God, but it's a comparative argument. Yahweh is incomparable. No other God has done what he's done. No other God has spoken like he's spoken. No other God has rescued like he rescued. Now we know from our perspective with the rest of the Bible that what God did then, he did it in an even greater way in his son, speaking and rescuing. But even this rescue of, Egypt, of the exodus of Egypt is unique and incomparable. And God has bettered it. But no other God has done this. So foundational to understanding who Israel was and for their own self-understanding, living in a pagan world, they would have recognized that Yahweh is unique. He is the only God, certainly the only God who matters, and in effect the only God. Other nations have gods. The argument of Deuteronomy never says, well, they're not really gods, and later in Isaiah they're called nothings, for example. But the idea is, you look at your God and we'll look at ours, let's compare them. And there's no comparison. And we can do the same, in effect. That is, 
There are a range of different religions in our world today, including the sort of atheistic type religions and secular humanism and so on. But in the world in which I live, there's Islam and there's communism, Confucianism, Taoism and uh, Shintoism and Buddhism and Hinduism and Sikhism. And compare that to Christianity, there's no comparison. There are good things in different religions, of course. That's not to deny that. But there's nothing like this God. This God is unique, incomparable. Now, unless we grasp that, we'll have no sense of mission. And what Moses is urging Israel to do here is urging them to obey God's law because he's unique. He's the only great God. There is no other God like him at all. And therefore, to live in a world of varieties of gods, pagan gods in those days, but to live in such a way that people turn and see the one true living God. That was ancient Israel's calling. They didn't understand it mostly. They didn't live under the law mostly. And it didn't happen mostly because of their sin. Not because the law was bad and not because God was weak. And not because other gods were better than this God said. It's a problem of sinfulness that gets dealt with ultimately on the cross. But it's a reminder to us that this God whom we worship wants the nations to come to him. And we'll see more of that over the next two days. Let's pray. Lord our God, you alone are God and there is no other and we pray, therefore, that you will strengthen us to live as you want us to live, to attract this world to your glory, and that we will speak as you want us to speak, so that this blind and deaf world may see and hear that you alone are God and place their faith and trust in you. Through your Son. Amen.